enjoying Vail, Colorado right now. And I'm rather jealous, except that when she's gone, I get to teach, and I actually enjoy it. And so, so anyway, and um, yes, we always have this good fellowship going on. And that makes me think, um, I wanted to, uh, just because of some conversations that I had this week with people, to remind you, of course, you guys are here. Um, so I'm probably preaching to the choir, but never use, you didn't get your homework done as an excuse not to come. Because one, we have this good fellowship that we get to uh, have with each other that we don't want to quit talking to start the lesson. But the other thing is, is that if we were meant to do this Bible study by ourselves at home and get all of our questions done, then we could just all sit at home and do questions and get them all done. But a big part of it is also coming and going through the Word together. And it's two pieces, and so if you don't get your questions done, still come, because it's an important component to it, and uh, maybe more important than getting all of the questions done. But it is, uh, but on the same note, I will say, when you do your study, it just, it makes your heart glad, because it just feeds you. And the more that you get it done, the more it spurs you to want to do more, because you feel like you're starving when you don't. And so um, I want to encourage all of you, but never use not getting your homework done as an excuse not to be here because this is a big part of it, is being with other believers and studying God's Word. So anyway, there's my pep talk for today. And um, for those of you that don't know, my name is Brenda Sanders, and I kind of help Nancy out, and when she's gone, I, I get to teach, and I, I just really enjoy the privilege of getting to do that and um, being allowed uh, to uh, be able to learn how to teach better. So anyway, um, I'll pray and then we'll get started. Lord God, we just uh, come to you and we we thank you. We thank you for uh, doing everything in your power, to have a relationship with us, which is, you have all power, and you have initiated relationship with us, and made it possible after the fall, and you have also orchestrated all of history, and um, everything uh, for that final work of Christ. And, um, and thank you that we live in that time when that work is complete. And uh, we just ask that you would uh, let us never take that for granted. Um, but just grow um, in the, because you've given us the ability to do that in Christ. And Father, I thank you for your word. Um, and I ask that you would be with us today as we go through it, um, that it would just uh, help us all, strengthen us, and help us to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, okay, so this week, um, what did you all think? Was this an easy lesson? Was it a hard lesson? 
Anybody? I see heads. Easy? It was a powerful lesson. And the other thing is I love the places in the Bible where they're like, now the point of what I'm saying. And you go, oh, good. They're going to tell me. I don't have to try to figure it out. And so um, that really is, I really like that. But what were some of the words as you went through your study, what were some of the words that um, stood out to you? What were some of your key words? I will was a biggie, wasn't it? And we're going to talk about that some more later, June, but that's a biggie. Anybody else? Priest, yes. Priest and high priest. And that's kind of a continuation from last week, isn't it? So, covenant, yes. And what... I can't even, A and T, thank you. (laughs) And also specifically which covenant? New. Okay, anything else? Better? And it's kind of companion, more excellent? Shadow, and what went along with that? Yes, copy. Anything else? Minister and ministry. Mm -hmm. Yes, declares the Lord. Anything else? Mediates. Good. Anything else stick out that maybe it was only in there one time? The what? Offer. Mm -hmm. What about obsolete? And um, the other one that I um, saw was the true, true tent. Someone is not happy today. <laughs> so any, anybody have anything else? So, all right, you, you guys did good. And this all kind of points to what... Did you come up with what you thought that um, the main point of this section was? Anybody have any? Yes, Christ. And what about Christ? What is he? He is a high priest of what kind of high priest? The, The superior high priest, exactly, exalt. He is the capital T-H-E, the high priest. And, and the also, what else were we talking about? The um, covenant? He is the mediator of that covenant. And it's what? The new, the new covenant? And, it, and what about that? What kind of a covenant is it? 
Is it just like the others, or it's a superior one? It is. It's a big comparison. And um, so then, you know, like I said, the, they start out with now the point, and what we are saying is this. And you go, oh, good, he's going to tell me the point. But what's our trigger word there that we need to look back? When we see now, it, it always wants to point. And also in this section, it also, we have such a high priest. Okay, what's such a high priest? Where do we need to go to look that up? We need, we need to just back up into 7. It's basically the end of what we were talking about last week in chapter 7. Um, and in verse 26... It is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And what are the things about um, this high priest, Jesus, that we see in here? What, he's holy. Yes. Holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Um, he's, he's eternal. And he doesn't have to offer repeated sacrifices like the other high priests. Um, he's appointed by God. And so he only offered one sacrifice, right? And that was it. It was the final one. And, who, and what was it? What was the sacrifice? It was himself. Exactly. And so this is the high priest that we have. And this is what we've been talking about. And so uh, the other thing about Christ that we see is where is he seated? He's at the right hand of God. And if you remember back in Hebrews, back last semester in Hebrews, in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty, of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's what they started out this entire book with, is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And as we've been learning, and you guys have probably already noticed it, that the author gives little pieces of this and develops it, and then he goes again, and you get more and more of a development of what that means. And so he obviously thought that this was extremely important, that Christ was seated at the right hand of God, uh, right up at front. And so he's going to kind of develop that more here in this section. And um, what did you learn um, from the passages that you looked up about what it means when it uh, says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God? How about in Acts 2.33? It is. It's a place of exaltation. And in Romans... Yeah, it puzzled me too. 
because I kind of thought, well, didn't he already have the Holy Spirit? Because he is. Um, so I don't know what that means, <laughs> and that's probably something that we would develop more. And Jim, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, well, see, there you go. Um, that one's a biggie, and I don't think that's the point of what we're, we're trace, tracing here, um, but it is a good question. Um, so, so we're going to put that one aside for now and keep going with what we actually did study. <laughs> so, okay, so Romans, in Romans, what did you find out about that? Right, he's not just sitting, he's not just, you know, I'm, I'm done, I'm through. But he is interceding for us. Yeah. So, okay, and then in Acts 5.31. Leader and Savior and give repentance. And forgiveness of sins. All right, in First Peter three twenty two. He's a place of authority, and he's over what? Yep. Pretty much everything has been subjugated to him, right there. So that kind of is a description of Christ seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So, it tells a little bit about what he's doing and then what type of a, of a position he holds there. And so that's important. It's important for us to have that picture of who Christ is where he is and who he is. So, uh-huh. That word intercession, um, mm-hmm. I actually looked that up, and I found it connecting in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's actually to meet with in order to converse, and then to make petition, especially to make the intercession and plead for a person. Very so cool. It's kind of like, I've always thought, well, God knows my needs, and I can ask him for specific things, but I can trust him with everything else. And I, it really impacted me that part of that intercession is a two-way conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not just, oh, God knows everything, and he's got it covered. It's also me going to him. Through. And, and conversing and being with him in the process. And be, I, I found that that's very, good. You know, I've always thought of intercession as just simply, you know, there's the Holy Spirit interceding. Mm-hmm. He's interceding for us. Now, can you read the the um, the definition again? The f- first definition. Did you guys hear that? For intercession. Yeah, the yeah. definition for it, intercession. Um, meet with in 
meet with in order to converse. Then to make a petition, especially to make intercession or plead with a person. And if you look at it in the noun, it's also technical term for approaching a king, a sovereign. So he, he basically makes it possible yeah. to have access to... Part of that whole process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. We're talking about the, the verb, the word to make six, right? To. Um, actually, the, the word intercession is actually in seven, in the end of seven on 25. And then I guess we probably see it again, but that's where I wrote my notes. So, yeah, the, in 725, mm-hmm. last, last week's passage. He always lives to make intercession. Mm-hmm. So then, um, as we we see that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but then backing up to, we'll kind of talk about what the Jews had um, in their in their minds about where they met with God, basically. And uh, they regarded the tabernacle, and then that also kind of translates into also the temple when they got a place, when they weren't roaming around. Um, They held that place very high, and that's where God came to meet with them. And uh, what do you think that the author... As he's talking, in verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What do you think the author was, what was his point in talking about the, the tabernacle? What did you get from that? And this is kind of question four and question five. So, it was a foreshadowing. So it wasn't the actual place. It wasn't the, and they said in there it was a copy or a picture. And part of the thing when Moses went up on the mountain and then God, when you read in, um, in Exodus, what did you read about what uh, what went on there? This is when Moses went up on the mountain, and what did God tell him? Mm-hmm. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. And these are some of the things that were in, in the uh, tabernacle. And then in 26... 30, and then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And um, if you look this up, this, this is not, we think plan and we think, okay, you had like a blueprint or, you know, something equivalent, little thing that he was looking at. It wasn't like that. There was actually, and of course they don't know exactly how, but there was a, maybe a model of it, but it was very exacting what Moses was shown as to how this was all supposed to look. And we'll get into it more as we go, but all of the, the specific 
things in the tabernacle, the tabernacle, how everything was laid out, it was all extremely, extremely specific. Yes, and precise. Good word, precise. And so um, that's, that means, you know, it was, this was an important thing, and this had been an important thing through all of the Jewish faith since they got the Old Covenant. You know, they came out and they got this. So this has been a central part of their worship. It's where they worshiped. It's the reason they could have a relationship with God, basically. And so this is very important. But what, as we see, as we read through this, the author's trying to make a point about that, that this isn't the point. The tabernacle is not the point. And what the priests are doing is not the point. However, they did serve as a kind of a pattern. It's something that you could, you know, the people could see, okay, this is how it works. But it wasn't ever meant to be the true thing. Mm-hmm. And so we'll kind of develop that more as we go. But the priests did their ministering here in the tabernacle, and they went through all of these processes. But where did Jesus minister? And this is question six as we're going along. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And, um, and this is in verse one and two of Hebrews, if you're looking at your... Uh, Hebrews 8. He's a minister in where? The holy places? Mm -hmm. And the true tent. And who set it up? Yeah, the Lord, not man. Whereas man built the tent that the priests served in, the true tent was made by God, and this is where Jesus ministered. And the, that word true, it's not true as in the other one was false, but it's true as in this is the real one, the other was a foreshadowing, a copy, a, you know, something to kind of demonstrate, but it wasn't the real thing. So it's not a matter of it being true and false. It's like this is the real thing. It's the real thing. So, um, anyway, and that is where Jesus has his ministry. And according to the text, what was the problem with the Old Covenant? We're on question seven. Who is at fault in the Old Covenant? The Israelites were at fault. Because what happened? They broke the covenant, didn't they? They said, oh, we'll do everything. And then they turned around and didn't. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And um, so, but that's, that's another thing. Israel broke the covenant. So that was one of the things. But was there also, in this question, it says, was it God, the first covenant itself, or Israel? So we've already got Israel is at fault. But also the first covenant. 
What about it? It wasn't perfect. And it wasn't imperfect because it messed up. It was imperfect because it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be the final thing. Um, and so it wasn't meant to make perfect, so it couldn't make them perfect. And if you look at uh, back in uh, verse, in verse 7, let's see, seven, eleven, and 19 in Hebrews. And a lot of this is uh, 7.11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? And then on to uh, verse 19. There. For the law... Well, I'll start back in 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So basically, there was a problem with the Old Covenant as well as the Israelites. And that's that's a good point. Um, and actually, we're going to kind of go through that here in question eight. As we were moving through, um, that, uh, and you guys found that question eight is its uh, quotation from Jeremiah. Did anybody go back to Jeremiah and read it? So that's where, um, when you're looking, like if you don't have the lesson. If, if we don't have a lesson, but you're reading through, and you go, ah, that's where your uh, little study notes in the side, your cross-references can help you, hmm, where is this? And you go back and you read it in the Old Testament. And you notice that this is teaching about Christ and the New Covenant, and where is he teaching from? He's teaching from the Old Testament. He's teaching from, because that's what they had. And so here we go. We've got this really good stuff we're getting ready to get into. And where is it found? It's in, it's in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel as well. And, um, and he's teaching about Christ and the New Covenant from the Old Testament. So that's really good to remember. And that's one of the things I love about Hebrews is that it really, the first time that I studied Hebrews in this class, and several years ago, um, is when it just, I went, oh, wow, the Old Testament. I need to, I need to study the Old Testament. And I had, I had grown up in the church with some not great teaching where it's like, oh, we just basically need the New Testament because that's the stuff, and the Old is, that was 
that went with the law, and and that was for the Jews, and the New Testament is where we, and no, it's all connected. It all goes together, and so um, that's what I really like. And I think Nancy mentioned that too. That's what uh, I like about Hebrews is it 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 makes that tie real to you, where you go, wow, this is really all one big story, and and God is the orchestrator of it. So when you go through. Um, this quotation from Jeremiah that's in Hebrews. And as you read through it, what did you notice? This was one of our key words here that people were talking about. A key phrase, I will, I will, I will, I will. And those of you guys that um, studied covenant, do you remember... I will is pretty much, what's it signaling? It's God working. And a lot of times, it's, it's, it, if you go back to where God is making covenants with the people, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. So in, what it means is, who's making the covenant? God is. And who was initiating it? And God, God is initiating it and, and in this case sealing it through Jesus. But I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, now this is Jeremiah speaking and this was right at the end, uh, right before uh, they went into exile into Babylon so they're just about to go into not having, a, they're not going to have a nation anymore, basically. They're going to be taken up by Babylon. And he's speaking this, and he's giving them hope, for this is what it's going to look like. You're getting ready to just be taken up by Babylon, but this is the hope that you have. And so this is when he's talking about it. But he says this new covenant What's he going to do? I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. So if we look at this, because he's, he's talking about a new covenant. They're living under the old covenant. And just to kind of get a good, um, just to kind of a refresher on the covenants. Um, covenants to how God basically enabled his people to have a relationship with him. And there was Adam. And then what's some of the other covenants that we have? What was after Adam? We've got Moses, which is, yes, who is here? Big boat, yep. (laughs) And then, after Moses, we've got, yep, David, and then we have 
Yes. And Moses, it actually wasn't with Moses, was it? Who was it with? Okay. And this is, okay, so, and this is kind of just to get you, where are we in the whole history of God working? This is what they're, whoops. This is the old covenant right here, and then this is the new covenant. And actually, this is also what you would say final. Because this, not only is it replacing the old covenant, as we're looking at, but it's also fulfilling all the rest of these. But specifically, it is replacing a lot of the stuff going on with this. And that's what, that's kind of one of the points of this, is that this is replacing a lot of the stuff going on here. Um, that you've had to do to be able to have relationship with me. So, and also, um, this was, the new covenant was, compared to the old, what was it? It was a better covenant, wasn't it? And so when you go through these verses here, what are... um, In the Old Covenant, we'll just go here. Okay, the laws for the New Covenant, where are the laws going to be? Yes, in their hearts. Where were they in the Old? They were. They were in stone. Their hearts and minds. And actually in Ezekiel, um, it says they'll have a new heart. God will give them a new heart. Okay. So then, um, who did God make this covenant with? In the Old Testament? It was with the people of Israel, right? And who did God make the covenant with in this, in the new covenant? Mm -hmm. It was, it was everyone who believes. And that's Israelites who believe, and that's Gentiles who believe. So it encompasses both, but it's not just a, a kind of a community. It's not uh, what I would say uh, a covenant with a, a nation. Yes, it's, it's more of a with people who believe, who in turn become a nation. But it's made with them each one. So it's more personal covenant. And then what happened with sins um, in, the, in the Old Testament, what happened in, in the Old Covenant, excuse me. Yes, sacrifice. Constantly. 
Yes. And what about it? Were they removed? It just covered, right? And so they had to repeatedly make sacrifices. How about with the new covenant? Mm-hmm. Once for all, and it was Jesus. And God will be merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more. So that's in the New Testament. And the other thing that we talked about last week, the priests, the priests had, were there, was there many or just one with the priests? There were many priests, yes. I'll just say series of priests. And here, one. And who is it? It's Jesus. And he is the high priest. That's right, through, but see, we still have a priest. That's the thing that I think it helps us to see this picture of the, um, the, temp, the tabernacle and the sacrifices and how the priests went in and approached God, and because it is a picture, and Jesus is doing this for us in the heavenly true tent, and so we still have a priest. And that's very important. And in, in, it's kind of interesting because in reading through this, you know, who was writing this? This is kind of the, you have to figure out where they're at when they're writing it and who they're writing to and then come over to the application of it for us. But for them, for the audience that was reading Hebrews, they had a problem with wanting to go back and do all the sacrifices. And, and if you stop and you think, because this took place, the Hebrews was written, and they're not quite sure if the temple was still there or not, so they don't even know if they were still sacrificing, but probably they were. It doesn't tell us here, but probably they were. So if these people were Jews, or most of these people had been Jews, and then they became Christians, and they had been through that. They had been through that. They had seen the sacrifice. They had seen the priests do what they needed to do, and they, and there was a, all of this. You know, it was very. We keep saying it was extremely involved, and we'll study about this more. But if you go from that and all of that stuff, and then you go, okay, here it is. You don't have to do that anymore. And then you're starting to doubt, and you're going, well, that I could see what was going on, and I, I could see how we're approaching God and all of that. And you're telling me that I'm not having to do that anymore, but I'm having all this persecution and. That looks like it's more effective. And so they're having to get, they're having to be convinced that this is a better way. Jesus is a better way than what you've had. Okay, so if we come for us, we have no clue about what that is. And we just say, oh, you know, we just go straight to God. Oh, no, we don't. So for us, we need to know we need to see all of this and what it does and all of that so that we have a good picture in our head of what it is that Christ is doing for us now, has done and is doing. 
And so that's some of the application for us. We go back, we see, okay, here's how they wrote it. And then we come in and we go, oh, here's what this, it helps us have a better picture so we know what it is that God has done and what Jesus is doing. Jen? Exactly. Exactly. And um, I will be, the, and what says God, I will be God, their God. And they will be my people. And over here, they said, and he said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And they said, everything that you say, we will do. But what happened? They didn't. They didn't do everything. And the thing is that in here, God is putting a new heart into his people. And like June said, that new heart is, a, is key to them being able to be God's people. Because if the old covenant, if it was just, oh, they messed up, let's just reset and we'll try again, um, they, they never could be the people of God because their hearts, oh, goodness, I'm making, um, their hearts were, their hearts were hard. They had hearts of stone. And so here, he's taking care of both parts. He's taking care of his part, and he's also taking care of the part of the people being able to be his people. It's like he's got both sides of it. Now he's taking care of it. So, and that's, that's very important, and that's what makes it a better covenant. So then, in question nine, the word obsolete is paleo, which means to make old or grow old. What is the logical argument that the author is making in 8.13? Yes, that's a good, good way to put it. It served its purpose. It's not that it was, it was wrong. It, it served its purpose in its time. But now that Christ has come and risen from the dead, we have a new priest, so there is no need for that. And again, like I was talking to... Uh, telling you guys, you know, here's these people that probably saw that and, you know, we would say, you can't go back. That's vanishing away. And actually it will, and that's, it will vanish away in a very big, it will, the temple will be destroyed. And that's, boom. Um, so, 
Anyway, you guys have any questions? Were there things that you didn't understand about the, um, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? That, okay, that was a big old question. Cause <laughs> so, um, so through this study, we get a glimpse of God. And so, you know, did you guys have any on question 10? What, what did you learn about God through this? I'm, I'm curious to know what you guys what you guys had on this question. Mm-hmm. That is, and um, that that's a, a key too, is that like, you know, when it said that they won't teach one to the other, it didn't mean that you weren't going to be learning from each other, but what it meant was that God has put that, he's put his spirit inside of you, and that is where your strength comes in. That is where, um, and what we have to do is listen and do the things that we need to do, study and have fellowship with other believers and go to church, you know, do the things that we need to have fellowship, community, um, study God's word and pray and all of these things that open up the power that the Spirit already has. Like, He's already working in us. And so we're not having to memorize and try to keep the law. It's there. But what we do is we open the way for that to work. But it's already there. And so it's not our power. It's His. And that's huge. And... um, Mm-hmm. Marriages and friends that were communication was everything, you know. And we just need to remember that, you know, in our relationship with God. Communication. Don't, you know, don't put your hand on it and like you said before. Yes. I think that's that's a key, Tony, is um a lot of times we think of communication. Um and, and especially with God, um, we think of it as talking to God. But if you realize 
your best way to communicate with other people is to listen, um, then that needs to carry through too with God. Um, there's, there's a two-way, and a lot of it is listening. There is some telling, but there is a lot of listening, and that's a big part of it. Um, and it's also key to communicating with each other is that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of listening to communication. Um, and so that's a, a big part of it. So you're right, Tony, that's a huge key. Um, and so, like, knowing that we have Christ, our priest and king, that's seated at the right hand of God, you were talking about that earlier, um, that, and the promises of the new covenant that will help us with our sin and with our circumstances and with our uh, daily Christian experience. How does that make you feel? Or how does that encourage you? Yes. Does anyone have a... Does it encourage you? It, <laughs> yeah, until you quit listening or until you forget about it. <laughs> it's staggering the power of this in Yeah, it is. It's very staggering. Mm-hmm. It's also humbling because we should get struck. But Yeah, but it in the, in the same token, the reason that he does all of that is for what? It's for God's glory, um, and for God's glory, he loves us, and so it's for his glory to work in us to grow, to be more like Christ. So, anyway. We will take a break and we'll come back. Let's take a look at uh, what Chapter 8 gives us theologically. And what I would like for you to do is I want, I want, uh, I want two ideas to kind of work through our our thinking today, and the first one 
is that one. You need a priest. Think about that statement. You need a priest. Um, it's really interesting. People that don't understand kind of how uh, the denominations work, if they, if they really have no idea, they'll ask if I'm a priest. Are you a priest? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a complicated answer because I kind of know what they're asking. And so in some way, I, I, I have to try to, you know, sort through that. And it's pretty easy for me at some level to go, yeah, I guess I am kind of a priest. I, know, I think I know what you're asking. And, yeah, there's some of those uh, traits, some of those characteristics that a priest does, some of those responsibilities that a priest does that I do. Um, but I want to I extend a little bit be further than that. I want to kind of ask this question. And, and don't, uh, don't answer it too deep. Don't get too deep too quick. Uh, sometimes that can put you in the wrong direction. Um, but I want you to just think about you and your relationship with God. And I want to ask you, like, do you, do you even recognize, like, the need for a priest? Now, we, we've talked a little bit about what a priest does. And so when you look at your life, do you go, yeah, like, I, I do. Like, I, I need someone to help me. I need someone to, uh, to converse with God on my behalf. Like, I need someone. I think one of the things that we've undone in the Reformation, which I don't know if it's a good thing or not, actually. It might be a bit of both, right? Like most things, there's a little bit of good, and then the more we look at it, we go, wow, that kind of messed us up, too. I love the fact that um, the Bible has been given to us so we can study it for ourselves, and we don't need someone to explain it to us. We don't need, you know, I kind of like the idea that the Bible's been given back to us, but can you guys recognize it's kind of messed things up, too? Right? The fact that I can just look at it on myself and understand it, and I don't need anybody, and I can ignore 2,000 years of church history, it's also messed us up, too. So it's not all, it's not all good. Um, but, like, I, I really want to ask kind of a, that, that, that question, kind of like in the inside of you, do you recognize that there is something that is lacking, broken, uh, needy? Because that's not a good word. I remember... Uh, telling somebody on staff, I remember, I won't say who it is because it was Sharon and she hates when I talk about her. Um, but I was just, I was, I was describing Sharon and, and, and I was talking, I was using the term needy and she kept looking at me like I was crazy and I was trying to get to a point. Um, it's just a word we don't like. I'm not needy. I hate being needy. Like I'm, I'm actually not needy. I'm actually rather self-sufficient. And we want our kids to be needy or self-sufficient. We do. I mean, that makes total sense. I don't want my kids to be needy. I don't want my kids to need, I don't want my kids to need anything or anyone. So we work on that. And societally, do we not work on that? To, I don't want to be labeled as needy. We try to teach, that's wrong. I think, you know, what's wrong with America today is that there's too many people um, that are needy, that are just not owning up to their responsibility. They need to be more responsible, don't you think? So they'd be less needy. Take my tax money. That's what we need. And I get where they're coming from with that, but do you, you know how hard it is to tell people who have been describing and been pursuing a self-sufficiency that they need Jesus? I mean, don't you think that's... That's why I always have to sell them to you. Because you don't know you have a need. Because you're self-sufficient. You're capable. I mean, until you, until you get, like, cancer or a divorce... Um, or you're completely broke, you don't recognize at all 
that you need God. And so you're kind of moving through with this self-sufficiency. And when you don't have, quote, unquote, when you don't have a need, so to speak, that's why I have to pitch them to you. Hey, you know what Jesus can do? Jesus can help you out. He can give you a better quality of life. Now, I know you have a Lexus, so it's going to be hard to improve yours. But let me tell you, he can. He can make you like your Lexus more. He can um, make you healthier in your Lexus. He can whatever it is. But when I'm when I'm completely um, when I'm completely self-sufficient, it's really, really, really difficult to sell the need because I don't recognize it. So I have to sell a perk, and that's a lot of what churches are doing today, right? Selling perks. So hey, you have a really, really nice car, but your marriage is in trouble. So let me help you with your marriage. Or you have a really, really nice car and even a really, really nice marriage, but how are your kids doing? And we just keep trying to find a need that we can pitch. Um, and then that's, that's really what we're working with. But I want to kind of strip all of that away and, like, ask you, like, when was the last time you ever just felt like, I need, <laughs> I need a priest? And that's hard for me to even think about. It really is. It's hard for me to kind of reflect on. And I think it's one of the, one of the things that we've lost in our culture is that um, because I don't like to describe myself as desperate, um, to me, there's God, and then there's like me. And I like to write them beside each other because honestly, right, and there's God and me. Instead of recognizing that's probably not the best way to kind of describe it. It's God, and then I'm under God. Like, I'm not as strong as him, I'm not as strong. So there's God, and then there's me. Uh, so you're still too close. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're right. How about God and me? Uh, you're still too close. And, and what is lost in all of this, right? What is totally lost in all of this is awe. Like the awe of God. And, and by the way, where does this fit in our text? Like in the book of Hebrews, um, again, going back and dealing with our context, right? Our context is what? People who know of God, who have at some level been pursuing God covenantally, and now all of a sudden we're told about Jesus, the greater than. So now they have Jesus. And there is pressure being applied to their lives, persecution, suffering, hardship, and they're, they're looking for the path of least resistance, which and don't just say they're lazy or they're selfish. No, they're, they're scared. So they're looking for the path of, path of least resistance back to God, they thought. Let's just go back. And it's in that pursuit, it's interesting that what he tries to lift up, the Hebrew writer, what he tries to lift up is, is a lot of the awe of Jesus, doesn't he? Think about that. He doesn't try to get into this scare thing. God will hate you. God will get you. He, he keeps lifting up Jesus and saying, listen, like all of the needs that Israel has always had um, remain in us. And, I, and you, there was a time when we, if I could pretend we're all Jewish, right? Let's pretend I'm the writer of Hebrews and we're the Jewish people. Um, I could say to you, listen, there was a time when we encountered God and we knew we needed someone 
to intercede on our behalf. And I'm telling you, none of that really has changed. But I, I, I want you to kind of recognize just how great Jesus is. Because you, when you read Hebrews, they keep, he keeps lifting him up, keeps lifting him up and saying, wow, if you were impressed with this, let me tell you about this. That's why I have grown in my possible, I know people hear about it almost like a disdain. It's really not because I have an incredible love for the Old Testament and incredible love for Jewish history, uh, Israelite history. I have incredible love for that. But in comparison to Christ, it just, it really begins to, um, to, to wane. And I actually think that's a good thing, to be honest with you. I think that uh, we have to be very careful making too much of something that is now obsolete, making much of it. And I, I get the draw, right? I get the draw. I can even understand why we might want to go back to those things. But it's interesting that those things actually didn't fix the problem that Israel had. So here's where I want to go to just kind of take a look at some very interesting things. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to to just kind of see this. This is kind of where I spent some extra time in preparation for this, looking at these texts. So if we're just kind of looking at Exodus, you know where Exodus 19 comes into play, right? So the Israelites have been um, at God's hand and at kind of in in Moses' presence. They have been brought up out of Egypt like God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, They are now uh, getting ready to enter up into the land. They are at the great mount, Mount Sinai, and there is about to be an encounter between God and them. And by the way, and, and, and notice, the, notice the similarities here. If I were to say this, and before we enter into the promised land, a covenant is necessary. And that's not just Israel and Mount Sinai and uh, Moses and tablets of stone. It's actually like heaven and America, okay? Not the nation so much, but the time and places in which we live. There is this covenant that we need. And our covenant is going to be through Jesus Christ. I mean, God works with these patterns. We see this. God works with these patterns. And before there can be this this relationship, the covenant needs to be explained. And God does this in splendor, right? Because it's all God knows how 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 to be or to do, right? So everywhere God goes, we just are like blown away by that. And the problem is, is that um, very seldom today are we ever blown away by that. Our preaching takes that away. Um, we, want, we so want God to be imminent that we dissolve his transcendency. We so want God to be here, right? We, we so want God to be your buddy, to be your friend, um, because we don't want him to scare you in any way. We don't, want, we, don't want, we don't want him to kind of repulse you in any way. And so what we do is we reduce him to some compact version of him so that he is close to you, his imminence, his closeness. Um, but what we're finding right now in the, uh, in the church, particularly in the West, is that I get why we've done that. I totally understand why we want to bring that down. That's why we, that's, sadly enough, it's one of our reasons why we just love Jesus so much. Why some of us may be even guilty of loving Jesus more than God because he's so much more, you know, human manageable. And then when we get into trouble, 
right? By the way, that's really not who Jesus is, okay? So let me just say that. <laughs> that's a bad preached version of him. But it, it's a little bit like, oh, really? You want your friends because your friends get you? Have you had this issue with your, with, your, with your kids at some level? Your friends totally understand you and they're totally supportive of you. But when, when it hits the fan and your life is falling apart, where do they usually turn? Yeah, they come back. And they're like, yeah, my, uh, my other friends, idiot friends in the 10th grade could not help me with this. Oh, really? Like a whole bunch of 15-year-olds, even 20 of them gathering together, couldn't figure out how to solve your problem. No, actually, it just was a pool of ignorance. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and now you need something greater. You need something bigger, right? That, that's such a great lesson to learn. And that is why I love this. So in, in Hebrews 8, what the Hebrew writer is describing is the greatness of Jesus. He, he's using the superlative idea. He is the high priest, this better high priest. And there should be awe towards him. And by the way, the, the, the focal point that we actually see in 8 is not just Jesus as a high priest. That's been actually happening all the way through the book. It talks about Jesus being the high priest in 4 and in 5, right? It's, he's the high priest of a better covenant, so I want, you to, I want you to look at 19 and go, oh, those sorry, sad Israelites. Man, they don't have what we have. Because how many of you look at Mount Sinai and go, oh, man, if we had something like that? Do we not? Man, if God comes down upon a mountain and speaks, like what's better than that? Um, God coming down in human form and dying for my sins? Okay? So let's be careful getting too excited about Sinai. So Israel gather around Mount Sinai, and when they do this, and just kind of looking at 19, again, I'm not going to read through it, but if you look at 19, God begins to explain what's going to happen. There's going to be a covenantal exchange that is going to, that is, that is going to take place. And then you all know what happens in 20, because it's one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. So look over at 20 now. Well, no, look at 21. I, 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 want, I guess I want to uh, highlight this. Look at verse 21 of chapter 19. And Yahweh said to Moses, Moses, by the way, maybe six times goes up and down the mountain. They set up like a fence around, right? Because why? Because the people might break forth to see the splendor and not realize what they're messing with. Okay? So, and, and Yahweh said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord, to Yahweh, to look and many of them perish. So you, you realize like if they don't realize what's happening they're going to break forth, and because of their foolishness and in part disobedience, because God said, don't come, any, don't come any closer to this. Because of their foolishness and because of their disobedience, their lives are actually in jeopardy with the presence of God. It sounds so harsh or mean, but what if it's a reality? That to accidentally stumble into the presence of God, not consecrated, not, um, not made holy... It is, the, it is the end of you. It is the death of you. It is the demise of you. See, we've lost that, haven't we? Even when I talk about that, does that just sound like bizarro? What do you mean accidentally stumble into the presence of God? What do you mean? No, 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 he loves me. He loves me. He cares about me. He, he, he looks the other way when I do wrong things. He doesn't think it's that big of a deal. Okay, because that's what we've been telling people. But God says, hey, listen, I mean, if, if someone should, and this is, 
going back to this, if someone should accidentally stumble into my presence, like it's the end of them because of my natural presence. That's, that's, that's amazing to me. And so, look at verse 22. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. <laughs> Notice how no one gets a pass? Even when Moses goes, hey, can I step like right into this and see you in your fullness? What does God say? Um, if you want to die. Like, there's no way around this, Moses. Now, what I can do is I can, like, I can be in an area different than I usually am in an area, and I can, like, put you in the rock face, and then you can kind of take a glance at, like, where I've kind of been. <laughs> and then I don't think, well, God would, you know, he knows everything. And then you won't die. If I do this precaution and this precaution and this precaution, you can kind of see where I used to be and then be forever changed with your outward appearance. Like, that just sounds like nuts. But that's him. So, if that's who he is, like, I want to ask you, like, do you need a priest? Like, do you look at your life and just go, man, I need, I, I look at him and I look at me and I cannot get there. I just cannot get there. I need someone to help me get there. And that's a big deal. That's why it is so critical that we recognize how much in the biblical text God, um, God descends, God comes down. God is the one who reveals himself. God is not something that we discern and discover. No, no. We discover nothing without his revelation first, right? There's no way for us to get there. We cannot get there. He comes here. And that's a biblical idea. God condescends so that we can at some level aspire to. Okay? That's, that's a very important biblical idea. So I love this. So, hey, there are priests, ones that God has selected and what I want you to do is they need to consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing with you Aaron. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to, the, to Yahweh lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. Basically, hey, God's going to give us a covenant. He's going to come down. He's going to speak to us. Interestingly enough, what it is, what, what he's really saying is, is God is going to speak to me, and you're going to get to listen. God's going to talk to me, and I want you to listen in on this. Now, look at 20, okay? So you have to set that up, because if you don't set that up, then you don't quite understand, like, what's at stake. Without the awe of the moment, it's just the most blah, blah, blah. So God spoke all these words saying, verse 1, and when you look at them, it's the Ten Commandments that God is giving to Moses that he is going to give to the people. And he goes all the way down. He describes all the, all the, different, of the, all the different commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. 15, 16, 17, don't covet anything. Verse 18. 
in chapter 19. But chapter eight, chapter 20 is where we were. Listen, it happens to me all the time. Don't feel bad. It happens to me all. I'll be somewhere. I was at a funeral recently, and it, my phone started reading the text. And I'm like, ah, okay, so it, it's normal. Look at, look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, and look at verse 18. So the Ten Commandments have now been given to, to the people, and really they've been given to Moses, and the people are overhearing this. They're listening in on the conversation. Have you noticed that? They're listening in on the conversation. And now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. So at the covenant giving, the magnanimous nature and revelation of God freaked the people out. And the people said to Moses, look at this, you speak to us. Like, we can handle you. Like, you don't freak us out. You're one of us. But God, no, 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 no. Like, we cannot take it. They are just terrified. And by the way, they're not terrified because they're, they, 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 they are rightly terrified. God doesn't go, well, you know why you're afraid? Because you're bad people. <laughs> no, it's like, you want to know why you're afraid? Because I am incredible. And you should be afraid because you need someone. You need someone to intercede on your behalf. You are right in this awe. That's why when people freak out, right, God gets that, understands that. And it's a, it's a right posture to actually take. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then Moses said to the people, now this is what's very interesting. So are we supposed to fear or not fear? And the answer is, biblically speaking, yes. You're supposed to fear so that you won't fear is really the biblical idea. You need to have the right fear so you don't have the wrong fear. That's really what the Bible says over and over and over again. That's why when Jesus says, do not fear, it's not a, hey, you have nothing to be afraid of. It's, you are rightly afraid. So don't be afraid. That's how it comes to them. You understand who I am. You understand what is going on. You are rightly discerning the amazing gap between me and you. Therefore, do not be afraid. Because God is coming to you, not in a I'm going to come judge you kind of a way, but I'm coming to you and I'm going to reveal who I am and I'm going to extend to you a covenant of, even, in the, even I believe the Old Testament is a covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of works. I, I don't like how that's labeled because God always, Paul doesn't go, oh yeah, you know. Now, by the way, there is the, the obsolescence of the old covenant, but Paul made it very clear that faith is what always saved everybody, okay? doesn't matter when it is, okay? So you got to be careful labeling it that. It's, much, it's a deeper idea. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that you would fear him. Notice, notice, no, no, just look at verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. Have you ever noticed that verse? Don't fear, because God has come down so you'd be afraid. So don't fear, because God's come down so you'd be afraid. <laughs> it sounds like a contradiction. It's not. It's understanding in a profound way 
who he is. And I would argue without that, Brenda said it, and I just thought, man, it sounds so dumb coming out of your mouth. And yet it's so amazingly true. It's just dumb kind of how it resonates in your mind. Everything is for the glory of the Lord. That is one of the most profound statements, but we just say it, and it just seems so, like, almost like a so what statement. When, when I hear Brenda say it, it's almost like a so what statement, right? It's just for the glory of God. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But it is just profound. When the, when I, the more I began to just sit back there, and as she was talking about it, it just kind of resonated in me. And that's what it is. You need, to, you need to have the right fear of the Lord. So do not fear. Because God has come down so that you might rightly fear him. And notice how, and notice, by the way, this is, this is something we're working through as a staff. We're going through a great book. You need to buy it and read it and live it. Kevin DeYoung's book, um, The Hole in Our Holiness, is a phenomenal read. And one of the things that he describes that we've completely lost is that in, the, in, in, in Jesus' plan for our salvation, it is the end of sin in our lives. It is the end of sin ruling in our lives. And heaven is uh, the wonderful place where a holy God prepares a holy people to live for a holy forever. And that begins now. So the way that we embrace sin, the way that we take sin, look at what he's describing here. This is why, this is why the person of Christ that we're about to get into is so huge. All of this comes down, don't fear, for God has come so that you might be rightly afraid. For what purpose? That you might not sin. Why? Because God in His holiness and in His righteousness doesn't do well with sin. Or actually, us in His presence don't do well <laughs> because of who He is. And the rebellion in us needs to be purified and needs to be you know, rectified. Um, interestingly enough, it can't be rectified in our lives. Now, as that, as that continues, and you can go back and take a look, so the end of 20 and then 21, but I found it fascinating that the people, by just God walking down, coming down onto the mountain, and God having a conversation with Moses, the people recognized, we need a priest. Even though they had priests. I mean, I'm using the word priest there as a little bit more than just a Catholic priest. or a, I mean, I, I need someone. I need something to bridge the gap. And I'll tell you, if you, can, if you want to do something with your children or your grandchildren or whatever, is that you need to help them understand. You need to talk about God in such a way, okay, that he is incredible. I mean, it, it, it describes a different way of looking at things because the more, I remember, I remember when my boys, when we, we, we uh, that happened quite a bit, we would discover them in a sin and my kids were really, really quick to point out, but Dad, you talk about like how it's all going to be okay all the time. It's all you ever talk about. It's going to be okay, and God loves us, and it's going to be okay. And I just want to strangle them. And by the way, it's partly true, but what are they doing? They're sinning so that grace may increase, right? But Paul says what? May that never be. So honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat to blame. I have so accentuated one aspect of who God is at the detriment of another aspect of who God is. Now, by the way, you could get it the other way. You could get it wrong on another way too, right? They could come and just feel like God would never love them or never care about them because I was so clear about how sin was and there was no path of reconciliation and no hope for them because they're bad children. I could do that. And by the way, I'm just wrong in another way. But don't think 
that just by talking about grace and just pronouncing that, that you don't create a problem. No, you do. Honestly, you do. You create a problem. And the beauty of it is, is trying to recognize both of those issues. And I, I think that's what uh, the American church is struggling with, and I would argue where the American church in many instances, the Western church, but I live in America, so where the American church has failed. They have so tried to make God and Jesus palatable, they've removed this. And so in the end, it's not that you need a priest, but if I could word it in a way, it would be like a priest could be a great benefit to your life plan. That's how we do it. But really, like you, you need a priest. Like you need a priest. Now, one of the problems becomes is that when you look at a priest and, and who these priests are, right? Um, these priests, and give me some latitude on this. Like, like priests are special. Priests are holy. Um, like you, you need... You don't just need any priest. Like, you need a priest to be different than you, right? You, you, you recognize that gap, and so that's why there are crazy expectations for priests. If you go back and you look at the Levitical code, which um, the word priest appears more in Leviticus than anywhere else in the Bible. In the New Testament, it appears more in Hebrews than anywhere else in the New Testament. But over and over and over again, it will describe a priest, and it will say, and by the way, if a priest should have any kind of a problem, okay, any kind of a problem, um, then he can't be a priest anymore. Like there's all of these disqualifications for priests. Because you recognize, like you need, you need something different than you. So you have all these crazy high expectations. And one of my, and one of my favorite sermons entitled, You Need a Priest, by, by, by Brother Williman, a United Methodist pastor, one of my favorite preachers. He tells a story of, um, of, a, of, a, of a priest or a, a pastor who is at a church who is really, really struggling, um, and they're just saying, listen, you're not getting it done. You're not getting it done. We just we need more from you. We need more from you. And in the, in the story that he's describing this, finally the priest says or the pastor says, but I have cancer. And Williman says in his wonderful, sarcastic, but true comment, that's no excuse. Now, before you just identify with the human side of that, and what do you mean that's no excuse? Like, really, in the Bible, when you have to have this crazy, gifted priest, there really is no excuse. Because who can bridge that gap? And you read the Old Testament, there really is a lot of a, but there's no excuse mentality, isn't there? But there's no excuse. And if, if a priest should have some kind of a problem associated with him or yet he gets some kind of a rash on his skin, he's done. <laughs> okay, but I, I, didn't, I didn't want this rash. Yeah, it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no excuse. That's the way the Bible describes it. So what's really interesting is, is the more that we realize we need this amazing priest and the more that we want someone who is above that and beyond that, that when we really sit down and we look at that picture of this priest, we go... I don't get him at all. Have you ever known people that are so holy, they're so dedicated that they're almost um, like so removed from your life experience that they're almost no good for you again? Right? They have no idea. And I, I love thinking about this idea that as much as I recognize I need a priest and I need this great one, when I'm still stuck in human terms to remove myself and remove myself and remove myself, I become no good anymore. 
And I want you to think about how God bridges that. What does God do to rectify those two seemingly contradictory ideas? And I want, and I, I'd love to even to discuss this for a little bit. Think about it. You need a priest, and he can't have any flaws. He can't have any weaknesses. He can't have any imperfections. And yet you know that if I were to describe somebody like that, you would go, well, he doesn't get me then. Right? How about somebody so perfect that they've never done anything wrong? That's the priest you need, isn't it? The priest you need is one who's never done anything wrong. How many of you look at people that have never done anything wrong, that have never struggled like you, and go, man, I love that. How many of you go, they don't get me? <laughs> they are wrong, but, that's, but, you, but you know what I'm talking about, right? It's, a, it's when I come alongside somebody, when I come along somebody and I just say, hey, listen, like, I don't know what it's like to struggle with alcohol, but let me help you with that. Their first response to me is, dude, if you have never had this monkey on your back, I don't want to hear from you. Let me, let me help you with your divorce problem. You ever been divorced? No. You crazy? I'm married well. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for reminding me of that. Right? Is that not true? We so want someone that empathizes. That's why our kids want our, their buddies, because their buddies aren't going to judge them like you. Their buddies are going to come along, and then the ones who come alongside of them can't help them, and the ones who can't appreciate what they're going through can't help them. Do you see the dilemma? And it's not just your kids that are in this dilemma. You're in this dilemma. We're all in this dilemma. And, and, and who answers that? This is beautiful. Who answers that? What's his name? Think about that. Like, how does Jesus do that? Think about how, talk to me. How does, how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus bridge the incredible gap between those two issues? I need a priest and I need a perfect priest. But if I have a perfect priest in human terms, he's going to be no good for me because he doesn't get it. And Jesus masterfully fills every need. Thoughts? Sure, but there's still a gap. Yeah, there's, and there'll always be a gap. Even on the other side, when I see him, I'm not going to go, oh, now I get it. No, actually, when I see him face-to-face, it'll, it'll seem even more amazing to me. I truly believe that. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are, but that's same yeah. as you are in this. And, you know, he's the sorrow, the pain, the anguish that he felt mm-hmm. um, in loving and natural death. Mm-hmm. So he can, in fact, sympathize with us. I mean, the Bible describes this, which is really interesting. I, I would even tell you this. It may not be a bad idea for all of us to grow up a little bit and to realize that maybe we don't need people. Um, I, I think there is an attempt in us, culturally speaking, to so want people that get us because we don't want anyone to make us feel uncomfortable or to challenge us. I think that's part of it. I really do. By the way, I'm not saying that, therefore, if you failed, you can't come along and speak. No, no, no. I believe that... For the alcoholic, okay, we're actually we're doing a lot of stuff on pornography in our, on our, pod, on our podcast. Um, 
that there are those that have struggled with pornography that are now victorious over pornography and they can speak help and truth into someone's life. And then there's someone who has never struggled with pornography and they can also speak truth into someone's life. And I would even challenge us, since there's a lot of us here, like be, be, like grow up a little bit. I would say it's a maturity issue for those of us that are, like, I mean, I need help. I need, I need help. And I need to grow up a little bit, and I need to recognize that those that have struggled with things that I haven't struggled with can help me. And those that have overcome and never really struggled can help me. I think there's a danger of pride on both ends of those. Well, if you've not gone through it, I don't want to hear about it. Um, grow up. Truly grow up. Recognize that, and this is why we, we, we totally forget that it is God the one who does the work. It is Jesus is the one who brings the healing. And I don't have to have a, a again, um, can Jesus speak truth into your life? Yeah, he was never divorced. Well, but he's God. Yeah, but that's a, that's a really lazy cop-out, actually, because he was fully human. So it's not that. I don't need someone to just sympathize with me. I need someone to sympathize with me, and I need someone to, like, teach me something that is greater and something that is more. Any other thoughts on this whole idea that Jesus really does this amazing job of mediating between those crazy two ideas, that I need a perfect priest, and a perfect priest isn't helpful, Jesus fixes all that. Any other thoughts for... I close. Yeah, I, no, we definitely still need people. Um, what's, what's really interesting is, and this is, where, this is what I love about what the Bible really describes. The, the Bible does not describe my problem as a sin. The Bible describes my problem as I am a sinner. And that's a big difference. So my problem isn't that I had a bad thought. And my problem isn't that I did a bad thing. My problem is that my nature needs transformation. That's my problem. That's why you can't just work on your problems and find peace with God. You can't just read the scriptures and just figure out a way to create a great life system and find peace with God. No, you need a priest. Like you need someone to go on your behalf. That's, that's, that's a critical part to it, right? And so you still are going to need someone to go and to explain this, to intercede on our behalf, and we need a perfect one to do it, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. Brenda, you were going to say? Well, here's the problem with that. Everybody hates it, but you just taught the scriptures. The scriptures don't say we're not bad people, we just do bad things. No, the scripture says we are bad people and we do bad things. And we, we are not comfortable with the fact that God loves us in spite of that. Think about it. Why do we so fight against that? You're a good person, you just do bad things. 
because we don't want to make them feel like they need anything. That's why I told my kids in the very beginning, you're terrible people. Your mother and I wonder why we ever had you. But we love you. We absolutely adore you. And you drive us crazy. And I say, and until I had you, I had no idea about the problems I caused my own parents and all the way back until I have a deeper understanding of the problems that I have created, the creator of the universe. I mean, again, when, when Andrea and I were dealing with um, a terrible sin in, 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 uh, in our oldest two boys' lives, my encounter with God, he really looked at me, and what he exposed more than anything else was the idea, um, like, do you love this Mackenzie? Like, do you love this one? Because when someone is really sinful, like, you see them in a different light, and if, when you're a parent, it's scary. Right? Because, and, and here's what God said to me. Like, do you love the reality of Mackenzie or did, or did you love your kind of cleaned up version of him? Or do you like him the way I see him? And I said to God, I do not like him the way you see him. I'm not comfortable with the reality of who he is at all. It makes me embarrassed. It makes me mad. And then God said, and by the way, can we talk about you for a moment? I said, it is not about me. <laughs> no, he did. He said, I want to talk about you for a moment. He did. He said, I want to talk about you for a moment. And you tell me how I've taken you. You tell me how I've been kind to you. This is all happened at 5 o'clock in the morning before I got to tell their mother that their children were worse than she thought. But, <laughs> but I had this incredible 15, 20 minutes with the Lord, and he literally said, do you still love them? And I started out with a no, and it ended up with a profound yes. And, and then, by the way, he said to me at the very end, and you still don't know the half of it. Right? Like I, and I knew that. He said, you still don't know the depths of how messed up this kid is. And by the way, you don't even know how messed up you are. Like, do you understand the depths of your need for me? You need a priest. You need a priest. And what's interesting is, if you look at Hebrews 8, it's, <laughs> this is the amazing part. And God has given us a better covenant, a covenant that he will write on our hearts. So, if the old covenant was highly demanding on the priesthood, God gives us a greater one. God doesn't relax the standard. He gives us a greater one. And then what does he do even on top of that? He gives us a greater priest. Like, I can almost cry thinking about that. God did not relax anything. He actually, like, raised the bar to the highest level and said, and by the way, I have fully done this for you in Christ. So I love the question, do you understand how badly you need a priest? And the answer is yes. I, at least I hope it is for you. I hope the answer is yes. Um, and before I write the final statement, let me, let me say one more thing. And I, this kind of just surprised me with, I think, I, th I think it was UK that was describing this, the word intercession from 725. Is that right? Is that still the right verse? Guess what that, it, it's, it's everything you said. But can, I need to add another piece because I did a quick study of it back there. It is someone who is seeking a conversation. So all of that is true. 
But are you ready for this? The one who is seeking the conversation doesn't just say good things about you. They actually speak the truth. It's someone who goes before someone on their behalf to either intercede seeking grace or seeking rightful condemnation. And by the way, not just in the Greek world, but actually in the biblical text. There are examples where people seek to intercede to condemn. So it's not, it's not just a flowery term. It's actually a profoundly truthful term. Now here's where, here's where it gets beautiful. And not in an empty way. You need a priest. Are we good with that? Will you promise to go home and help your husband, wife, children, grandchildren, good friends know how much they need a priest? Help them feel the awe of God and his incredible favor? But what the book of Hebrews actually says. Maybe to really deal with it, I'm going to do that. Kind of draw a difference to there. Like you have a priest. That's what the book of Hebrews tries to point out. You have a priest. Now, if you think about that word for intercession, here's what's interesting, and you know this. Is Jesus going to go to God and lie about you? Right? Is he going to go and, 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 like a lawyer, like twist the facts so that he can somehow confuse God about the full truth about who you are? Like, you know that Jesus and God are working in complete unison. That there's nothing against one for the other. I mean, they are just, they are perfectly one. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are perfectly one. You know that, right? So this is why when Jesus intercedes on your behalf, he intercedes speaking the full truth about you. (laughs) Does that make anybody swallow hard? The full truth about you. So Jesus Christ, and and by the way, he doesn't do it because God doesn't know, but we have to use the example, right? Jesus Christ goes before God and said, here's who Jim is. And these are the thoughts that Jim has had, and these are the actions that Jim has done, and this is the brokenness in Jim's life. And then God already knows, but let's pretend, let's work out the illustration. And Jesus says, "Um, but because of my work, that I did for your glory. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. But the work, because of the work that I did for your glory, Jim claims that. Jim associates himself with me. This is why the confession is such a big thing. What is the confession? It is the, and Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus' life made a difference between us and God. That's Our confession is not a generic and Jesus is a Messiah. No, no, no. Jesus is the pathway of peace to God. And he's the only pathway to peace with God. Jesus is the one who stands and intercedes on my behalf, telling the truth about me. Describing, if he would need to, all of my sin and all of my brokenness and then all of his righteousness and my appeal to that. And that's why if you've never, if you've never clung to Jesus, if you've never recognized you need a priest but you've got a life plan that includes a Jesus component. You don't think he knows that? You don't think he's aware of that? (laughs) Yeah, Jim's an absolute mess, and what he's doing right now is trying to pretend he's liking us in the process. 
That's what Jesus will say for many people. In Matthew 7, it says that Jesus will say, I never knew you. He'll say, I never knew you. Like you were never clinging to my righteousness. You were trying to do it on your own. You were never seeking obedience to me. You were trying to do it on your own. Um, I was a selling point in your religious plan. I wasn't your Savior. I wasn't your Lord. And Jesus will intercede, i.e., speak on your behalf. He will speak the truth about you. And here's the beauty of it. All, the only question you have to ask is, are you really clinging to Jesus? And I'll be honest with you, I, I ask that question a lot. And the older I get, interestingly enough, like almost every other question I ask, the older I get, the more I begin to doubt and wonder. But I'm going to be honest with you, not on this one. Like the older I get, the more I go, no, I really am clinging to that. Like I really am clinging to that. I really am clinging to the truth about who he is. I really am clinging to his goodness and not my own. I really am clinging to his covenantal faithfulness and not my own. My final words will be scripture. And it will be from the book of Hebrews, not chapter 8, but chapter 4. Phenomenal text. Let me find it on my wonderful phone. It's in the section about Jesus, the great high priest. So chapter 4, these are verses I recommend you have memorized, 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Put, burn them into your brains. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Who Jesus is and what he has done. That is our confession. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the only path to God. That is, our, that is my confession. Today at 3.15 I'll be meeting with a Muslim man and I will be sharing that confession. That is my confession. And I will cling to that confession for as long as I live. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so what? Look at the conclusion. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that interesting? He ends by saying, not just this, but this. And for that reason, it is with confidence we enter into the throne of grace. Let's pray. And so, God, I thank you for what Jesus Christ has done. Father, help me, help me to speak right about that. God, I'm just so tempted to try to make people feel better about their circumstances and situation. Then sometimes I get real mad and I, get, I want to make them feel worse. And yet the Bible just seems to say, just speak the truth about it. And let the truth be the problem. God, I will speak. Um, I can speak on behalf of all of humanity that we need a priest. And I can also speak on behalf of all humanity that we have one. Thanks to you. 
I thank you, God, for never relaxing your holiness or your righteousness, but meeting all of that for us in Christ. And therefore, God, may we know what it's like to not be afraid because we are rightly afraid, that we would say no to sin and be a holy and righteous priesthood because of what you have done for us in Jesus. It's in his name we trust and enter into your presence boldly. Amen.